This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything you should know about Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. When you go to Havoc Journal, you will read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. If you haven't been there yet, check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. My guest this week is a repeat. I'm in Cafel. He's been on the show, I think, three times now. I think he was on when we had a panel show at the Weekly Havoc, and then we had him on to talk about just his life, which was incredibly interesting. And now we've had him on. Now he's back on for the third time because he has published his very first book through Second Mission Foundation, by the way. Um, his first book, The Resolute Path, is a compilation of some of his best essays that he wrote at Havoc Journal. And it's a thrill to always to have Iman on as often as we have. Um, for those of you that don't know, I'll recap his life story here just because... We're going to reference it throughout the episode. Not that you shouldn't go back and listen to the old episode that he was on, but I'll sum it up here. I'm in, as a child, uh, survived and escaped from two civil wars on two different continents um, in Liberia as a Lebanese uh, family living in Liberia and then in Lebanon itself. And I'm in, came to the U.S. as a refugee with his family settling in the Boston area where he eventually <clears throat> became a U.S. Army soldier uh, deploying to Iraq, being medically retired, and then going into law enforcement where he has been for, I forget, over 16 years or however long it's been. Um, as a cop, Iman has worked on a wide uh, plethora of levels. I mean, he's worked, you know, um, DEA task forces, he's worked <clears throat> street crimes, detective, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I say all this because Iman won't. Uh, <laughs> I mean, as we talk about in the episode, Iman, Iman's life story, just the bullet points of his life story are incredibly fascinating. Um, that, that, that it really isn't what consumes him, though. He's really consumed with um, issues and thoughts. And arguments. A lot of his essays, as you'll see in the Resolute Path, are arguments, positing one position against another, 
or explaining the differences between two aspects, usually of the law enforcement or military um, dynamic. So things like behavioral versus racial profiling, or what is a law enforcer, what is a constitutional protector, or the sheepdog versus his concept of the hybrid wolf, a boss versus a leader. Um, you know, he's fascinated with with those kind of issues, which are all valid, all worthwhile, all interesting. I don't think anything's more interesting than his own life itself. But Iman is, uh, you know, he is self-deprecating uh, on a lot of that stuff in ways that I find fascinating as well, uh, and so completely unwarranted. I think he would. Uh, I, I'm just always fascinated by his life. Anyway. Uh, there is an ulterior motive, of course, in having Iman back on, besides the fact that we're talking about the Resolute Path. Since Second Mission published the Reso- Resolute Path, Charlie Faint, owner of Havoc Journal and Second Mission Foundation, <clears throat> uh, is having Second Mission Foundation sponsor Veterans Repertory Theater's Savage Wonderground event in Boston this upcoming Halloween, Tuesday, as a matter of fact. So if you're in the greater Boston area, come over and check it out. So it's going to be wild. We're going to have the, the show itself is going to be an interpretation, an immersive multimedia interpretation of army veteran Edgar Allan Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher, which is an incredible story, incredible horror story, perfect for Halloween. <clears throat> it's also based on a house that is believed to have been about four blocks from where our location is going to be in Boston which is really trippy, but uh, we'll have poets there. We'll have a live painting, live music. But of course, one of the poets that will be there is Iman reading some of his stuff. And then after the show, which is about an hour, uh, then we'll actually have the book launch party for the resolute path. And it's going to be awesome. It's an open bar finger foods. It's actually free. The whole night, the whole evening is free. There is an RSVP, and there is a dress code. So go to savagewonder.com, savagewonder, all one word, .com, savagewonder.com, and you can see how to uh, RSVP to the Savage Wonder Ground event and come see Fall of the House of Usher, uh, hear Iman's poetry, and come to the book launch. So very, very cool event. So to pump that up, we're also... That's yet another reason that it made sense to have Iman on right now. Um, obviously, he's fascinating on a whole lot of levels. Okay, without further ado, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Iman Cafell's second, third profile in Havoc. Welcome, man, back to the show. I mean, it was three. This is three now, right? Three I, times I you've been so. on. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I feel like it is. You and Dave, you and Dave are setting records out there. No wonder we're doing a wonder ground out there where you guys are on the show all the time. Uh, yeah, right. Dude, it's good to see you, man. Yeah, you too, my man. I, I'm not used to seeing you like this. You're lounging. You're in loungewear. You're sitting back on a comfy couch. This is not the I'm and I'm used to seeing. I know. I know. Well, our last Zoom call, what was I in uniform? I was at work. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I feel it's either that or like where where was it you you do before? Uh, like you were like in the gym or something. Like I feel like oh yeah yeah a dark yeah, was, space yeah. or something, right? Yeah yeah, in my gym. That's right. Yeah, that last one was in my gym. <laughs> this is this is a very suburban. I'm in Cafel. I'm, I'm looking it at is. right now. It's, it's, I've, I've not uh, seen that before. Psyops, buddy. <laughs> I love it. So I mean, it's funny. I was uh, you know I read the Resolute Path, which in a lot of ways was just a reiteration of so much of the stuff you've written in havoc, but there, man, there were a lot of things that I think I either missed at havoc or hadn't synthesized in the way that you synthesized them in the book. Talk a little bit about it. Uh, I know you talk about it in the prologue, but people should probably understand how the book came together. Yeah. So I was, uh, you know, I, I was talking to Charlie one day and, uh, who owns Havoc journal. And I told, you know, he, me and him were just talking. He's like, you know, you're the highest writer right now in terms of the amount of articles that they publish. I'm number one. As I call, like, oh, well, I just, I just send them stuff. I didn't realize that, uh, you know, I, I wrote that many. So other people have told me, Charlie has told me, you know, I should write a book. I should make a book of just kind of like the life story of, of me, you know, of Ivan and, and see, you know, and, and put it together. And, and my thing was, well, I did, I didn't want it to be just a story, like, you know, your biography or autobiography all about me. I, I just wanted it to be a compilation of what I've written in Havoc as a way to show uh, fellow veterans, uh, law enforcement, former law enforcement, uh, those who have their struggles to show that no matter what, you know, we're, we're resilient. And we'll push forward and we'll do what we do, uh, regardless of what goes on in our lives. And I think in the book, it kind of showed that just because the way I put everything in chronological order where, you know, myself and, and Charlie were like, all right, how, how do we want to do it? I said, well, let's put my early stuff in the past, you know, my stuff that happened to me in the past to, uh, you know, coming to the U.S., to joining the military and then becoming a cop, kind of like that sort of uh, roadmap for sure. the book to show everybody that even, you know, in, in your darkest moments of your life, you can still push forward regardless of, you know, what you see or what you go through. So th th that's kind of, I know I went, I think a little deeper than, <laughs> than I expected, but, no. but it, it was, it was a way that, that I wanted people to, to just read it, not as a me story, but more a story about resilience. That's why I called it the resolute path. Yeah, and and that certainly comes through. I mean, I guess for me, if I have one criticism of the book, it's that um, I wanted more of you because it was like, dude, that la your life is not typical of most people's, even in the military Leo world. And as much as people definitely can take away lessons, and you put your thumb on the scale. I mean, you a lot of the, especially the last part of the book is a lot of the takeaways that you've had from the military Leo experience and being able to, to articulate some of those lessons. And I want to get into some of that later, but for me, I was like, Holy shit. There are Dickensian novels that we're skipping over here. And I want to, uh, uh, Oh God. All right. Let me, let me keep my ammo dry for a second longer. Cause I want to, <laughs> I want to ask you, I want to ask you first, because I don't think I've ever asked you and all the times you've been on the show. I don't think I ever actually asked you, why did you even start writing? Because you've been writing for Havoc for a while. And like what what triggered you not just to write, but to submit it and to publicly put yourself out there that way? So it, it was 
actually, so I started writing for Havoc uh, just around, I think, COVID, right? Or just before COVID. And I think during that time, I just, you know, talking to a lot of, uh, you know, fellow veterans and, and, and former Leos and stuff like that. And everyone kept telling me, you need to write stuff. Like the stories that you have, you know, your, your life story or, or, you know, your perspective on modern day law enforcement and your perspective on your time in the military is, is very unique and different. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of, so I I submitted kind of the first couple articles to, to Mike Warnock, the, the editor over at Havoc. And he told me that he's never seen that kind of perspective when it comes to military law enforcement. He said, we need more. (laughs) So what did did he say was unique about? Well, I'm curious. What did he, what did he put his finger on? The, the, the human part of it, the, the, how I really dive into the human characteristic of being a soldier, the human characteristic of being in law enforcement and basically putting it down in words is okay. very you know different just it's because to to somebody like Mike or to the to the non even in the uh, people who are non law enforcement it gives them instead of the 30,000 foot view it gives them the on the ground this is what's going on view on the ground type of thing versus you know the 30,000 foot view so i think i think that's what really captured uh Mike uh in in the way i was writing it and through his help i mean he's been a great help with that being a, a the editor and and helping me kind of craft my voice through writing and um and it's funny as as i go back when i go back to look at some of my early work to now you can see a stark difference in my writing style um on you know he 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 pretty much helped me develop that voice you know in in terms of writing what do you think has changed the most in your writing style from when you started I've it's it's kind of taken me deeper into my uh reasons of why or into my uh mm. into I mean for example like my some of my po- most of my poetry that I write and and you've pointed it out in the last couple shows and the stuff like that is just how I'm able to take that adrenaline you know that we feel going through a door and put it into words like that's I think the biggest change that I've had now is where I'm able to find the words I want to write and, and like some of the poetry I would write, it'd be on my mind. And literally I'll put it together in like 10, 15 minutes and it'll just flow just exactly the way I want it to flow. It's not like I go back to the drawing board. I'll just write it. And I think, you know, I've sent you a couple where I'm like, Hey, Chris, what do you think of this? You know? And, and, you know, you, you would literally tell me exactly what I was hoping, <laughs> you know, I would, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, the reader would see, uh, from from that poetry, so I think that that's the big one of the biggest changes that I've had is is just I dive even deeper now than I did before. What's been the biggest um, benefit of writing for you? Do you find yourself muttering a lot less in the bathroom mirror? Like, I mean, did you kind of get stuff off your chest, or do, like, what's the takeaway? What's the rush for you? What are you getting out of it? It's, it's therapeutic most of the time. Um, because in and I just we were just actually me we have a group chat just a bunch of us cops and, and veterans and uh, we were just talking about some of the uh, you know child predator type cases that we've worked right and and man you could see that you know just us writing about it it just go we just go right through all the emotions from anger to sadness type of stuff and to me with with writing it out is is very therapeutic because I'm able to 
jot it down. And it may, it may be just, I was thinking of writing one article, all of a sudden I've written like a three, three mm. articles where I started mm. with one because, you know, the, the one I started with, let's say, you know, one of my, my uh, last ones that I've written, um, it's actually turned into two articles. Actually, I just submitted the latest one uh, to Mike. It's coming out on the 26th, so I can announce it now. Um, mm. It's basically about narco-terrorism. So it's, it's been mm. like on my mind mm. type of stuff. And, yep. and given the Middle East perspective of narco-terrorism and how, right, especially with what's going on now in the Middle East and all that and how that sort of stuff kind of pays and funds those types of wars where, you know, uh, it, it, it just, the articles just kind of grow as, as I methodically write through them. Um, it's, it just, it's, it's kind of interesting the way it works with, you know, how it works in my head. No, that makes uh, complete sense. It's interesting that one of the instigators to get you to write was people telling you, Hey, with your story, you should be writing a lot more because I feel like I feel like you pull your punches a lot on you, which I get that you don't want to like, you're like, Hey, I got a family. I've got a life. Like I, you know, you'll, you'll indicate it because I remember when we talked through Liberia and Lebanon and all that, like that shit is so goddamn fascinating. And it was like, and it, and I can see it like with you, like you kind of go, yep. There's one to say this much. You know, like, right. Am I wrong? I mean, like, I yeah, feel no, like no. It, it, it's funny that that's what, what people were like, Hey, with your story, you should be writing. But I feel like what you you're, you're much more comfortable going, Hey, here's an issue. Here's a problem set. Here's a takeaway. Here's a lesson I've learned. And it seems to me that there's, it's not a false humility. I think it's just humility or something that you, you kind of, you know, leverage your experience and you like to be shoulder to shoulder with your brothers in blue or or in green, but it's like, but also you are a fucking rare fish. And like, there's some interesting things that, that people that are really interesting takeaways. And I feel like that's the stuff like early on in, in uh, the resolute path, I was like, Oh shit, man, there's fuck. We could do a novel on just the first three entries in that book alone. Like that is rich, rich subject matter. Have you thought about, I mean, well, how's this, how does all this sound? Well, like, how's this hit you? <laughs> yeah. I'm so, I mean, I mean, it's, the biggest thing with me is for a guy who writes a lot and writes about himself or write, you know, resolute path. I absolutely hate, hate talking about myself. I, I <laughs> right. really do. I right. absolutely hate it. <laughs> and, and it, like it used to see, like when, when I'm teaching, you know, law enforcement and, and you got to do your intro and your instructor bio and all that yeah. shit, I yeah, skip yeah. right over that slide. Yep. This is me. And this is what I've done. And boom, like yep. I'm done, yep. Yep. you know, I, and, and just, I absolutely hate it. And, and it's funny. You said the humility, it, it's, it's a reoccurring theme where I, I was actually just training a SWAT team, uh, um, out in the Berkshires, um, mm. which was actually really nice. It was, uh, I bet. We'll right talk now. offline about about yeah. where we were, and okay. it was. It's and then we'll talk offline about that because that's a whole nother story right there. Okay, but yeah, um, yeah. well, fall but in the, Western Massachusetts, I imagine it doesn't suck. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, no, it's it's and and the training site um, is unbelievable. Like I said, we'll talk offline. Okay. That way we All right. Get yeah, loose yeah. track. Yeah. But so I I go, you know, I'm training the SWAT team, and we're you know going over a couple little tactics, nothing major at the range and doing my thing. And, you know, I had the, uh, I was basically a guest of another instructor. He wanted me to come down and help him out. And, uh, and I guess, uh, you know, I, you know, I like to do an, an AR after training, you know, I'll give him a call like, Hey, so sure. how, how did, you know, how did you, what did you think it flowed? You know, X, Y, Z. And he said, 
man, he's like the entire team loved you. They said you were so humble. I'm like, really? Like, yeah. He's like, <clears throat> you just, they said, you know, just my, my method, my, my way of t- addressing them and talking to them. is just, I'm another one of the guys. It's like, well, I am <laughs> like, I'm nobody, you know, yeah. I'm nothing special just because I'm there, you know, and, and that's the thing. I hate the term instructor. I'm, I'm more like a uh, developer, you know, I, I develop mm. your skills. I don't, I'm not here to teach you skills uh, unless you're a brand new cop or a brand new private in the military. That's, that's a whole different world where I'm, you know, yeah, that now I'm instructor, I'm teaching, but versus, you know, a veteran officer, veteran SWAT operator, I'm more or less, yeah, develop the skills that you already have. I'm not here to, yeah. you know, tell you how to do what you do. Right. And, and I think that's, that's just the way I am because again, I hate talking about myself. I hate anything that anytime I, I have to do anything like what, even like when, when my chief would bring me up to, uh, I remember the long time ago, I went, we had this big, uh, they have a mayor's convention in Boston every year, you know, all the, all the city mayors and all that go, go and, and chief brought me up and, and I had to talk about my unit. And I'm like, God damn. I was like, thanks. <laughs> it's like, I, I hate even doing that. I mean, I'll talk yeah. in front of crowds, not a big deal, but again, when it comes back to like talking about myself, I, I just don't like it. And, uh, I don't know if it's just the professional in me where I'm like, well, it's not yeah. about me. It's about yeah. you, you know? No, that makes a lot of sense because it, it, in the, by the same token, you don't like talking about yourself, but you also write very articulately, as we've already alluded to, about the emotions that you personally feel. So you're willing to go to like rip open a vein and show that, <laughs> and you're willing to intellectually like show different arguments. It's the middle part of just like the biographical, like, <laughs> hey, this is when, this is where, this is why type thing. It's And that makes total sense to me. Let, let's dive into some of this because um, I don't think in, in all the times that we've talked, I don't think I fully grasped, and maybe I didn't ask the right questions, but I don't think I fully grasped the family dynamic and how that played out in your life and really in making you who you are. Um just to tee that up for everybody uh, who should read the book um, to hear it from you yourself, but coming from a Muslim family that was, you know, seemed very par for the course and all that, but to start to feel that you were betraying them and that there was neighbors that were saying that you were betraying them and your parents weren't standing up for you. uh, I mean, holy shit. I mean, that is, I, I can't imagine the psychological pressure and the weight of that. Um, and when you talk about, I think it's just in your very first piece, you say, I, I realized then I was alone at the risk of playing amateur psychiatrist. And I, I'm not even going to play it because I think you do it for yourself already in the piece. But you say, you know, when I got to the military where everybody just bled green, suddenly you had a, a family where everybody just kind of was able to see each other, come as you are, take you as you are. And, and there wasn't uh yeah, a lot of the identifying that would that would happen uh, otherwise has that been fixed? Is there what's the what's the resolution? How do things stand with your family? How do they feel about you now? I mean, you're a very vocal, outspoken person in the law enforcement and military community. I mean, what's the that dynamic? Has that ever changed? Um, yes and no. I mean, it's 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 it. I just put it as it is what it is. <laughs> you know, I don't. I don't, uh, you, you know, I've been, again, like, like I always said, since my early twenties, late teens, early twenties, I've been 
who I am uh, since then, you know, and to break through that mold took a lot of uh, uh, sacrifice on my part to, to get through it. And I, you know, it, it's one of those things where I felt I'm doing the right thing and I was going to do it regardless. It was, it, it got to the point where, you know, conversation with my family was, well, I'm going to do this and see you later type of thing, you know, type of uh, mentality that I had. And throughout the military and, and even, you know, becoming a, in law enforcement, um, I, I don't think they even grasp what I do or what I've done. You know, it, it, I don't think it really, because to me, they live still as if they're back in the village, like the old days, you know, where that's all they know. And they don't understand. Again, it's that, it's that fight between the old versus the modern, right? Where they're stuck in the old and not reali- not catching up to the modern. As much as they might explain, you know, try to understand what I do, they still have no idea. No, so that's why, like with them, I I never share police stories with them or military stories with them because it just, to me, it doesn't it doesn't compute in their heads. Really, it it just does not. I I don't, I don't know. It just does not make any. Uh, sense with them. And when we do debate, um, I would tell them, I said, listen, I, I can't debate because my feelings, my philosophy on things is far, way far ahead than what you would are willing to grasp. And they would take it personal. They're like, well, what are you calling us stupid? I was like, no, I'm not calling you stupid. I'm just calling you ignorant. Just, you just don't know what you don't yeah. know. Yeah. And you, tr- and you, you pretend to know. So, so, I mean, right now, you know, again, my relationship with them is, it is what it is. You know, I've, I've kind of learned to accept that uh, a long time ago. I've accepted that. And it, what's funny is my siblings are just catching up now. Really? Yeah. And, and even my, my brother, well, my brother, um, he, you know, my, my younger brother, he's the number two in the family, uh, my younger brother, he, he, you know, later on in his life, in his late twenties, early thirties, he finally one day said to me, "He's like, damn." I was like, "Now I know what you what you've been seeing," and uh, just the 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 feelings that they have towards you know whatever subject. He, he realized how kind of backwards it was. What triggered know? him? What triggered him? What opened his eyes? I think one day me and him were just sitting, you know. Uh, grabbing a drink or whatever. And I shared with him one story when I was in Iraq. And probably that's the only story he's ever heard me talk about. Cause again, I don't, I don't talk too much about my experiences, but it was just the one story. And to him, he was like, God damn. So you were sitting with him and, and you just told him one story. Yeah. And that's all it took to kind of open his eyes a little bit and give him a window. Yeah, because I th- I think he was starting to and I told him that one story because I remember one day I was arguing with my parents um and I was like you guys have no idea some of the things I I've, I've seen done whatever you know when when I was at war and and that was like one of the very few times I actually allowed myself to open up a little to them to put them kind of like hey here's my perspective and here's why and they got quiet, really quiet. And then I shared that story with my brother and he was like, holy crap. I was like, yeah, dude, I, I was, I was at war. I, I, I wasn't, you know, sitting around twiddling my thumbs. 
you know, and, and I think that's when he just started, it just kind of all, it hit him kind of like with, with a ton of bricks, so to speak, where it was like, geez, he's like, yeah, now I see it all. When you would argue with your parents, what was it? Was it over political, the political nature of the war or was it over? I know they make a one, a one point, uh, they say, you know, you'll go to hell if you kill another Muslim. I mean, was it that or is it or is it just about, oh, you haven't seen anything. You haven't done anything. You're still our child. You don't know anything like it was it was it was uh, it was mostly religious, religious and, and political okay. type of but more on the, the religious side, like. You know, and, and some of the more fanatical ones, again, they would say, oh, you betrayed your faith or you betrayed this, betrayed that. And even the fanatical ones, I never really listened to them because they were fanatical. And I was like, yeah, whatever. And and I would tell my parents, like, hey, you're you, you need to pick your friends better, you know. But to them, oh, if you're if you're, you know, Muslim, you must be a good individual. Like, no, that doesn't work that way. I was like, in all the religions, you have your good and your bad, you know, sure. and and I think they finally are agreeing to that. And, and th- that was my biggest struggle with them is getting them to see that uh, the bad ones are making things worse for uh, everyone. Sure. Else. Sure. I mean, your story about, um, uh, about befriending the guy who became the what, social media director for ISIS um, yeah. you know, as, as a kid yeah. and all, I mean, it's a, it's a jarring story. What's interesting to me is you, you make a point in the story that, he turned because someone at the mosque radicalized him. Someone got oh, to yeah. him. Someone said something. Yeah. What's yeah. interesting to me though, is who got to you? Like you had every re it seems like you had influence, if not to go down a radical path, yeah, yeah. at least just to be like, meh, okay, whatever. I mean, why did you, what made you the way you are? Because no, it doesn't seem like anyone was mentoring or whispering in your ear. To I, I, on the I really don't know. I, I really don't know. Uh, um, I, you know, looking back and in, into my past, I mean, it could have been one of many things. I, I mean, I was big in the martial arts, um, you know, when I was a young kid, I mean, I started in the fifth grade and I went through all the way through even, um, in the military and all that. And, and I think those tenants of Bushido and stuff like that really, um, hit me right i was mm-hmm. like man this is this is the way it should be you know that warrior mindset that which i do write about a lot sure you know that warrior mindset of of, of knowing uh just knowing what's right and wrong right yeah it, like for me i've always felt i don't need laws to tell me that you know thou shall not kill that you know like right, uh, right. you know it's uh, to me i've always had this inner moral compass i guess that i just knew that well you know, like, unlike my friend who got radicalized, I'm, well, I shouldn't even call him a friend, but other than the dude who got yeah, radicalized, right, right. Um, it was easy to influence somebody like that. But with me, I always resisted influence. I've always been that way, um, where no matter what, I kind of like, I, I would kind of, or I would make up my own mind, uh, mm-hmm. regardless of, of whether it's quote unquote peer pressure or whatever it is, even growing up in high school and, and all that, where, you know, my, it's kind of frustrating. My son who's like me is that way too, because he, I can't influence him to do anything. <laughs> so, so he's getting me back now where it's like, damn it. Like, he's <laughs> like me. <laughs> so, so it's funny to see it, but, but I, I like that because to me, it's, it's going to tell me that he's like with my son, he's going to grow up to be his own man where he's not going to get influenced by others. 
where he's going to carve out his own path the way he wants to carve it out. And that that's kind of like me. Um, my, my cousin who became a cop, uh, before he became a cop, he called me because he was kind of wondering about the struggles I went through with my family because he's going to have those same struggles. Then I said, listen, in the end, you got to carve out your own path. It's, it's not up to anybody but you. You know, and and don't and I told him, don't let anybody influence whatever decision you make. If you make a decision, you stick with it and you go. And uh, and now he's a cop. And and I think that wow. that's just the way I've always been is just uh, I never really had a, a mentor, so to speak, that that went throughout my entire life. You know, yeah. I, I just kind of I guess I picked and chose different lessons learned sure. uh, throughout my life. And then I would read a lot on on the Stoics, Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, all that you know, all the all their teaching, uh, Lutzow, uh, uh, Miyoto Musashi, and a lot of the the lessons learned, you know, from from thousands of years worth of of wisdom, and kind of just crafted my own, I guess, psyche, if you want to call it. Just because you brought all that up, how important do you think is it for someone in the military Leo community? to read and to, and to read philosophers and to study philosophy. Do you think that's crucial or do you think eh, for some people it's important for others? It might not be. Oh, I think it's crucial for every, for everyone in, in those, in those professions to read those philo- ph- philosophies coming from the warriors of the past, because those, those individuals to me um, were far ahead. Even these days, they're far ahead of us. Um, you know, with all the wisdom that they've had. And and even if you think as barbaric as those days were, their mindset was on a clear path, right? You know, their mindset was was just like when you read them, you know, especially uh, Musashi, who, cre- who basically created the double sword technique and him just talking about, you know, for example, when he says, if if you can't control yourself, how do you expect to control others? Where it's like, yeah, if you can't control your own emotions, how do you expect to do your job, essentially? Like, I see it, now flip it to, like, the Leo world, right? If I can't control my own anger, my own emotions, how am I going to deal with somebody who is basically gone off the deep end if I can't control my own emotions? You know, I'll give you a quick example. Yeah. The other day, uh, dealing with a with a, a clear, um, we call them EDP, emotionally disturbed person. So somebody who's mentally broken, essentially. Um, and this individual was just, yeah, this individual was just really nasty swearing and all that stuff. And, you know, this, this cop next to me and he was getting himself all fired up. I'm I'm like, Hey dude, why why are you getting fired up, man? It's like, there's no need. Yeah. It's like this individual doesn't understand what they're saying. Right. Right. They can call you every name in the book, but you know what? They're, they're not there right now. Of course, they're dangerous as a result. So we keep keep in mind our tactics and our TTPs and SOPs on how we deal with it. But at the same time, if you're a, you're gonna get your your blood pressure, your you know, he's like, oh, my blood pressure is rising. Like, then go take a walk because you're not gonna help the situation. Yeah, right? yeah, cool off. So so that that's the thing. Like those lessons learned for any cop or any any first responder doc, you know, ER doc or anything, you learn a lot yeah. from them. Yeah, about how to deal with crisis. Absolutely. It's interesting though, because I'm thinking about that and I'm like, yeah, that's, I, I, I miss how she's hundred percent right. Of course. It's interesting, especially as we look into PTS and the second and third order effects of 20 years of the GWAT and how many 
really well-trained folks. I know you talk with Kyle Lamb and all that. And I, um, you know, we've, you know, talked about a lot of, you know, combat veterans that we've known and, and seen and all that people that were really cool, calm and collected under fire, had control of their emotions under fire. To me, the, the, the carve out, the, the, um, the, the workaround for Mus- what Musashi said is you have, you have control of yourself in the moment because then you can control the situation. The problem is what do you do when then everything relaxes after? And then does the compartmentalization, does the walls of compartmentalization drop? And now you take it out on your wife, your kids, your family, your home life, yourself, maybe mm-hmm. just drinking too much or whatever like that. Um, and I'm getting us off topic, but I'm just, it's interesting um, because I do feel like all those philosophers that you mentioned built such an interesting and um, rock solid bedrock of the warrior philosophy. But for us, we've had a, let's call it a privilege over the last 20 years to be in war that we have learned so much about the left and right limits of the warrior walking that path and going, yes, good, cool, learned a whole lot, we're, but we're building on your shoulders and going, hey, 20 years of nonstop kinetic activity, these are some of the things you can see. Do you feel like it's important? For us, I'm I'm asking a question I'm positive you're going to agree with, but I'll I'll tee it up as a softball for you. Do you think how important is it for the GWAT veterans who have lived through a generation of war to tell their stories that the experiential wisdom that we have an opportunity to generate and to capture from the last 20 years not be lost? Oh, it's very important. I tell a lot of my friends to uh, to share some stories. I, you know, I, I get it. Most stories we don't like to share uh, just for the nature of uh, bringing us, I guess, back into the battle, into the war. But at the same time, you know, I've come to realize that the more we hold on to stuff, the worse we get. Right. Because you've got all this data in your head, you know, we'll call data in your yeah, head yeah. that if you have nowhere to unload it. You're just going to drive yourself and everyone else around you nuts as a result. So to me, all that uh, knowledge, all that experience that I've had and me dumping it to the masses, so to speak, to, to fellow cops, to you know, cops or, or veterans who have uh, never seen combat but, but are just there, you know, getting ready to go and stuff like that. Just being able to dump some of that really uh kind of opens their mind a little more like every morning in roll call when when i work as as the shift commander and stuff you know i i put on certain videos use of force videos at work and and i really try to capture the emotion aspect of an officer uh, under fire and the chaos that ensues and and i really talk to them about the feeling of that chaos and how you are able to shape that chaos to your benefit you know, as, as the, as the cop getting there, no matter what it might be, whether it's an active shooter, a major accident, whatever it is, where I, that's where I focus on for the training is where are you emotionally and can you get yourself to where you got to go? And that's and your poetry too, right? I mean, pretty poetry much. almost does that. It's an instructive poetry. Pretty much, you know, and, and that's the biggest thing that they take away from because later on I'll ask like, Hey, so what, you know, what are your thoughts? What did you get out of these? And a lot of them say, yeah, I mean, it's true. You, If emotionally you're not prepared 
or mentally you're not prepared, you're going to lose that initiative that I always talk about. You know, it's that first few seconds you get to a call. And if you're not mentally prepared, it's good. You're going to fall. It's, it's going to fall apart. You're going to fall apart. You know, your, your advantage just goes away every second you delay uh, your response. Yeah. So, so that's the biggest thing is, is I guess, you know, with the knowledge that I have and the experience that I have and for all of us in the GWAT world, if we're not dumping that info back into the community, it's going to get lost in history. Yeah. And, you know, one of the best stories I've, I've, I've listened to on uh, West Point, the Modern Warfare Institute, their podcast, yeah. uh, I forget what it's called, uh, something Spear, right? I, I, yeah, forget I, what it, I know what you're talking so, about. Yeah. yeah. So they had a command sergeant major um, Payne on there, a Medal of Honor recipient for rescuing the 70 hostages that ISIS had, uh, the Yazidi oh, women. Okay. Right. Uh, amazing story. And he basically talked about, the situation where his actions resulted in the rest of the SF guys and the Rangers there to push forward. Um, And, and it was that moment where I'm like, man, that's that control under chaos that I talk about all the time. It was a great example of it. And it was basically, they were getting over. I mean, it was a firefight. You're talking a firefight, you know, a huge opposition. And they were trying to get over this wall to get into the compound and he could see, you know, he looked to his left and right. He could see the Rangers and the SF guys just really hunkered down, you know, because they're taking so much um, small arms fire. And they had to use the the, the ladders to get up over the uh, wall in mm-hmm. order to get in. And he looked to his left and right. And he he said, F it, puts the ladder up and makes his way up. Now you got the, the command sergeant major climbing up. And he and then all of a sudden, the rest of the regiment just did the same exact thing. He said that was that moment where everybody just joined with him because as a leader, he needed to show that you need to go, you need to push to get the mission accomplished. And, and that to me right there is like, man, that, that, that's it right there. That chaos, he saw the chaos, right. But he was calm under it and just did what he, he had to do. Yeah. It's, um, I'm, I'm tempted to get into all the issues that you bring up both with that story and in the book, uh, because, (laughs) <laughs> That's how a conversation with you always goes. Um, I want to yeah. resist it for one second, only because because I mean I'll tell you where I'm tempted to go is if we don't interpret, let's call it war stories correctly. If we don't digest the information that we've accumulated, especially over the last twenty years, others are going to have to learn it and learn it painfully without any roadmap. It really, literally reinvent the wheel if they even have the ability, because I think there's also, I I think it's interesting to see the different takeaways from different communities after the GWAT. The military community, I think, understands there's a treasure trove of experiential knowledge that has to be mined. But in many parts of the civilian world that I've now started to fall into more and more, and I'm hearing conversations I haven't heard in a long time, and I realize most of them are still dealing with the vocabulary of the Vietnam era kind of knee jerk repulsion of any use of force on behalf of any government police entity or um, a postmodernism where they believe where, where they're, and again, I'm, I'm painting with broad brushstrokes here, but where there's a sense of meh, 
eh, can't happen. Eh, not worth it. Oh, thank God we're over that. That's all over and done with. And I think it was Plato that said a wise man in a time of peace prepares for war. And instead that sense of blase contentment is, and, and the dismissal of the ennobling aspects of the warfighter mentality. I think that's one. I think it's easy for people to civilians to wrap their heads around the sob stories. And I'm, yeah. I'm saying that I don't mean to demean that. I mean, people have had some hard, horrific experiences, yeah, yeah. as we know. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not, I'm not trying to demean it, but I think it's much easier for people to see a dysfunctional veteran than it is for them to see someone whose strength, identity, purpose was clarified in war and yeah. who and, and clarified because they knew they were doing a good thing and that they were standing on the right ground. That's much harder for people to process. Um, and I think that leads us to a lot of subjects that you talk about in the book about the misinterpretations of police work, misinterpretations, especially, I mean, even as personally as your own family with the military mm-hmm. experience and all that, um, everything becomes the best word is it watered down, dismissed, you know, shunted aside. Yeah. yeah. I guess let me, let me change, turn this into a question that, that kind of gets it one of the things I, I really want to understand better. You talked about your family and we don't have to talk about your family specifically, but you did mention they had like this old world mentality, the old versus the modern. What do people, civilians, Leos, military folks, what do they need to understand about the old mentality versus the modern? What does that mean in the context of something that's useful knowledge for people to understand how immigrants, how refugees, how even just other parts of the world that aren't even in the United States might think about a society. What are some of the tenets? What are some of the pillars of that old world mentality that people should understand if we're going to interact with it, whether to solve problems or just interact, you know, peacefully with. Yeah. So, so it's simple uh, to me, it's simple UW, right? It's, it's, it's uh, even though as complex as UW is, but, but it, it breaks down to that simplistic, uh, mindset where even even conus right in, in the u.s as, as a cop i'll go into a bad neighborhood right in, in the city i work in or whatever and my whole job again with 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 my unit and and all that i've done with my unit has always been under the guise of you know uw it's mm-hmm. enabling the populace to take care of itself right and that's where the old right the old clash with the modern because I always say get get comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? And the old, the reason why even even cops, right? Old school cops, they mm-hmm. they hate change, right? <laughs> even mm-hmm. old school military hate change. Oh, why are we going to use this? Why are we going to use that? Where it's always well because this way is better, or this way is a little more advanced, or this way works better, or you know, human performance says that this method is going to work better because of the human performance aspect. Um, and because there are some that are so stuck in the old, they, they, they don't, it's, it's kind of like working your brain path of least resistance. Well, the path of least resistance to what yeah. I know, yeah, right. Versus yeah. what I don't know. And to me, I challenge everybody to get comfortable being uncomfortable, study stuff that will make you uncomfortable as in, oh shit, I don't even know the subject. Maybe I should learn a little more about it, you know, or, or learn this technique or learn this tactic or get into jujitsu or, or get into 
philosophy, right? Really challenge yourself. Because in the end, to me, if we're not challenging ourselves, well, we're not modernizing. Right. Mm. And it's funny, I say, I say, you know, I'm study, I, I, I love reading the philosophy and the studies of the old school warriors. It's because to me, the old school words, again, like I said, they're, they're way past their time. And even these days, still way past today, just in their philosophy and their mentality and how they think. Um, and it's important for us as more modernized uh, soldiers, warriors, is to keep passing those lessons on to keep us moving forward rather than falling back into the old and stick into that path of least resistance where yeah. okay we're comfortable doing it this way well no let's let's not do it this way let's let's challenge ourselves to do it better and you know i get i get cops all the time say man i want to be just like you or i want to work just like you or i'm like hey be better than me i was like that's my challenge to them and, and again it goes back to like god damn i'm like i'm not anybody special i'm just freaking me you know and it's, it's yeah, a, yeah. it gets you know i'm like no just be better you know i still have my limitations i know i have my limitations but the younger don't, right? They don't know their limits yet. And I was like, no, push, push past your limits. Know what, know what you're capable of. Yeah. And, and that's, I think that those tenants of the old where they don't, to me, they, they don't challenge themselves enough uh, to really push themselves. Now, where to me, I'm always about you know, pushing. Wouldn't, I mean, just the nature of what your family's been through though. I mean, immigration, two civil wars and all that. That wasn't enough pushing. I mean, that, that seems like that would force people <laughs> to, me, to change an awful well, lot. Well, to me, that was survival okay. when we came over, you know, from war. It, it, was, it, was, it was our moment to survive. And when my father tells me we only had hours to get out of Liberia before we got overrun, um, that's, that's all survival, right? We survived two extraordinary civil wars, came to the U.S., and then got comfortable, right? The complacency. And not really pushing ourselves because to me, like my father, like we all had this awesome, have this awesome opportunity to come to a country where you can live the dream you want. Right. But when you don't take full advantage of it and you kind of stick to the tenets of the old, well, that's why, you know, when I say, you know, people of the middle East, like, you know, we created algebra yet we're not in the moon at all. You know, we're so backwards because of the old that are stuck in our minds that we haven't advanced as a result. And, and that's where, you know, with, with my family, my parents, I said, well, why is there only three jobs in my family that is looked up to doctor, lawyer, or business owner? Like, why are those only three things that, wh why not something else? Why are we stuck in this mindset? To me, that's the old mindset. Where, well, why do you have to be a doctor? Where you can be something else. You could be a pilot, right? Or why do you have to be a lawyer where you could, you know, create something? You know what I mean? Uh, it's, it's just because the, to me, we have to get past it, right? And, and to modernize ourselves. To, again, it goes back to the book, you know, Resu Path, to be resilient in our path and go for it. Yeah. You know, yeah. if it doesn't make you comfortable, well, it's okay. Yeah. that's that's the whole idea you know when when you know i have a couple of cousins that are just scared of taking risks right whether you know entrepreneurially uh through business and stuff like that they just can't take a risk and i always say i'm like why take the risk you're not going to know how it actually is going to work out if it, if it doesn't work out just because it didn't work out doesn't mean you're done just go back to the drawing board adjust uh, you know adjust fire and go keep going i think i think that's the difference with with us GWAT guys and, and a lot of combat vets and, and, and more experienced and, and 
uh, law enforcement officers are just, we're able to just kind of adjust fire on the fly versus just allowing the failure to stop us. Yeah. Yeah. Are you practicing as a Muslim? Uh, it was funny. I was asked that uh, not too long ago. Not, not really. Um, I think it's just with my mind as, as, as philosophical as I've become, I find that religion is going to, is the type to kind of put a clamp on that mm-hmm. where it kind of, you know, it, it, it you got to get stuck in a certain mindset, which I don't, I don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, sure. I, I believe, I absolutely believe in God and, and all, all the other things, but I, I don't believe that there's only one set way to worship. Sure. You know, do you, you feel comfortable going to mosque or not so much? Oh yeah, no, I, I'll, I'll go to mosque. It's been a while since I've been to mosque, but when, when I would go to mosque, the, the unfortunate part is, you know, I'm sure with Christianity, same thing, going into church, whatever. I just don't like the forced preaching, mm. right? Where, mm. where somebody will come up to me and say, well, no, this is the way you should be thinking. So no, no. Like, you can't tell me how to think like I, I have my own, you know, that that's the only thing I don't really like is, is it's, it doesn't make me uncomfortable. It makes the other person sound very ignorant. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just like, yeah, I was like, yeah, but you're not, you're, you're, you're thinking linear, not, not all around, you know, like not, not, you're not expanding the horizon. So, so I mean, to answer your question, I guess is just, I don't really practice because of a lot of the things I've seen, um, especially overseas and the civil wars and all that, where I'm just like, man, you know, um, I think, um, I forgot who said this, uh, but uh, it was a quote that uh, religion is flawed because man is flawed. I forget Mm -hmm. exactly who said that. Uh, But, but I, I truly do believe it. I said, I have always said that the message of God got lost in man. No matter what, what, no matter what religion it was, whether it was Judaism, Christianity, or or Islam, like in Islam, in the Quran, uh, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, it's called we're all called the people of the book, yeah. right? And the message is pretty much similar in all three of them, but it got lost through interpretation, and then people created their own interpretation. That's where you got radicalism and all that stuff, and and it's turned into a mess as a result. Yeah. I mean, we fought twenty years of war because of that ideology sure you well know, it's funny the, it's the funny. old versus the new yeah it's it's true though about it, just about everything i mean you know no be a perfect government you know uh there's always gonna be flawed governments because there's flawed man I mean, shit yep. there's flawed sports teams because there's flawed man i mean it's just like you know <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's like uh, once once we're doing it, it something's gonna yeah. go wrong yeah. um I, I want i i feel like i can't let the opportunity go since we're talking about this while israel palestine is flared up again Professionally, I'm sure there are things that change in problem sets you deal with, and you know you're in big metro areas and what have you. Personally, do you do you find co- any sort of cognitive dissonance with Israel Palestine? Do you see that, uh, or are you like, hey, I'm over here, I'm in America, this doesn't impinge on me at all? Like, how much how much do you get worked up over Israel Palestine? Is that a is, oh, is I, that get, I get I uh, get yeah. yeah I mean I. The, the unfortunate part is with, with that, with the war and, and what's going on is what I get pissed off about is the, is the misinformation or the, 
uh, media hyping it up, like just as if it's a play by play sports game, you know, mm. and that's, that's one thing I, I do not like is, you know, I think I wrote something, you know, people have asked me what I felt about the whole war and everything. I, you know, I, I wrote, I actually wrote it uh, real quick and, and because, uh, you know, I have a couple of friends at work that really enjoy my perspective on things because the minute, you know, I'll, I'll see them, like one of my buddies, he comes up to me, he's like, so Israel Palestine, what do you think? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I knew you were going to ask that because he's, he's, he's one of those kind of history buffs and yeah, loves sure. history and reads a lot sure. and stuff. And, and he, he actually reminded me, he said, you know, he said two years ago when the fall of Afghanistan happened, you said in two years, something major is going to happen. I was like, really? I did say that. He's like, yeah. He's like, I, he's like, I remember it. I said, I remember you telling me that the, again, to, to us, we think first, second, third order effects. Right. So that's at the time my mind was at, all right, first, second, third order effects this is what's going to happen. And I said, and I literally gave him that timeline. I, I think I said two to five years, something major yeah. is going to happen. Yeah. Major. And sure Sure enough, there it is. You know, well, this, this and major. To be fair, battle. even before that, I mean, Ukraine, yeah. Russia, too. I mean, which I <laughs> firmly believe would not have happened if we'd stayed in Afghanistan. But that's a yeah. different subject. Um, so yeah. So anyway, you were saying. So so I, w- I was saying that you know, like like to me, there was so much leading up to this war that people ignored. You know, the public ignored it, did mm-hmm. not see or refused to see, um, and like we all felt it. You know, combat vets, like we knew we knew something was going to blow up soon and and it seems you know to me the you know our, our failed politicians i'll call them uh were so busy looking with their bipartisan or partisan or or whatever you know republican versus democrat and that's all they looked at is the failed to see the threats that are out there uh i'm sure intel briefs were being brought to them over and over again to start looking out for this look out for that and it was just ignored and, you know, the, to me, it's a huge intel failure on, on our part that no one really, well, I mean, you can't tell me no one saw this coming. You know, it, it, it's, someone saw it coming, but it's just a matter of who, who paid attention to it. And I don't think, you know, much attention was played. And to me, it's just the amount of misinformation that, that comes out about the war right now through media and whatever. I actually refuse to watch news or media about this. I just get my information from <laughs> direct feeds, right? Um, and and I just ask people that I know that are teed up on it, say, hey, what do you think of this? Or how did this happen? Or, you know, someone would say, oh, yeah, yeah, we, yeah. we watched it live, you know, or, or, you know, they'll hint to me that, oh, you know, we were overhead watching X, Y, and Z, you know? So, so it tells me these guys are right there watching it. And I, I, I always say that the biggest victims of war are always the kids, no matter yeah. what. Yeah. We saw it in Iraq. We saw it in Afghanistan. We now we're seeing it here, uh, all over the world. You know, when when countries fight, who are the ones that get hurt the most? Are the kids of the of the war? And and to me, that's that's the failure part. Yeah, you can you can block aid and 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 electricity, water, all that crap to a country, but in reality, who are you really hurting? You know, it's it's soldiers are soldiers, right? When we fight each other, we fight each other. It is what it is. But when you want to start putting in children in the way, I mean, I mean, again, like I said, we saw that in in Iraq with 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 ISIS and even Al Qaeda uh, mm-hmm. back then in 05, where they just use kids as as the decoys to do yeah. some horrendous yeah. things. 
And and that's I think the difference with the way a war, you know, a true warrior sees the fight versus just pushing in and go. You know, and and to me, it's like it's 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 a mess to me. It's a, it's 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 a mess over there right now. Yeah, I mean, do you think that this is going to uh, impact us in very tangible ways? Oh yeah. Do you think we yeah. could see? I mean, I know there've been initial reports of certain lone wolf people that were motivated and have done stuff. Do you think we're going to see a lot more of that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with the open borders we've had, I know there are known terrorists that have crossed over the border as a result because of the open borders. Um, that connection, I mean, you'll read in my article with narco-terrorism, the connection with the cartels and, and terrorist groups is so big yeah. that it's, 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 really dangerous to our national security and it's not being i don't think it's being looked at enough um it, you, you're right i mean i remember it, narco-terrorism was a big obsession of mine about 10 years ago i want to say um with it, it seems like it's one of these issues that everyone knows is out there and then it flares up like once a decade and people go is this gonna be the moment and i think Correct. I'm going to throw this out here. Sanity check me on this. This is how I always think about it. Um, that it's, it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like the a rogues gallery of bad mm-hmm. entities that all align in ways mm-hmm. that they fix each other's vulnerabilities. Because you have a nation state working with a terrorist organization, working with financing from the drug money. So basically, they've scratched each other's itches. The nation state gives the viability. This obviously was a huge concern when Hugo Chavez was in Venezuela with all the ties he had um, because he would give nation state legitimacy and they'd give visas to be all that stuff. And it was interesting. I know the way the Zetas helped Iran try almost assassinate uh, who was it, the Saudi ambassador in a yeah. restaurant in Virginia, you know, whatever that was 10, 12 years ago now. Um, yeah. you know, but it flares up occasionally and then it dies down. And it's always one of those things that you see the potential for absolute chaos. And you, I mean, God, the border's been an issue for fucking ever. And especially yeah. since like 2005, 2007, it's really been a big issue. And it's like, but yet it just hasn't blown up. But we all know it's there. It's just a ticking time bomb. Do you think, put, put odds on it, do you think this actually pushes this into a true viability that narco-terrorism could truly um, become the next asymmetrical warfare platform that we're seeing in this country? To me, it's always been, but it's not paid attention enough to, I think, because I've researched, I mean, working for the task force up at the federal level, I've worked cases where these uh, groups, whether it's in Lebanon, uh, Afghanistan, wherever it might be, where you can trace the drug money back and forth i mean it's yeah. it's been around a long time i mean yeah. i had this one case i was dealing with this local drug group in uh in you know in the state side and i was you know going through phone numbers and getting warrants and doing all this stuff and then this one phone number from columbia that the drug dealer would make contact to ended up being connected to a major uh drug shipment that came from afghanistan about 1500 kilos of heroin mm-hmm. Going through Prague, making its way to the U.S. Yeah. So, well, fifteen hundred kilos. You're talking about thirty grand a kilo. That's that's money, right there. And it ended up getting seized in Prague. And I was like, holy crap! And and you know, all the time we would get these intel 
briefs coming in of, you know, whether it's heroin from Afghanistan, fentanyl from China, right. um, or, or drugs from Lebanon, Syria, wherever it might be, being moved to Southern America, Central Southern America, Dominican Republic, um, and making its way into the U.S., well, that is the internal poisoning of the U.S. where uh, I even wrote it in my article. I remember back in 05, I was watching this video of this sheikh, a uh, Saudi sheikh, uh, you know, radicalized Saudi sheikh, I forget his name, but he was talking about how do you defeat America? And he literally laid out the plan. And I, I was like, yeah, that's exactly how you defeat America. It says, you know, border, right? The border, drugs, internal divide. And then he, like, he, he called it out back yeah. in 05. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and I and I've always said, and you know, I brought it up the chain of command all the time. I said, "This is what we need to watch out for. This is going to be the next war. Is internal more than external, and we're seeing it with the cyber warfare. We're seeing it with the you know the propaganda, the misinformation, the the AIs that are now yeah. making its way. Um, I mean, we're seeing it now, and I don't think it's being paid enough attention no. to. No, it and is not. and. I did this research uh, back. Uh, Rand Corporation did this research about Russia and their cyber warfare. They spent close to $10 billion in cyber warfare. And we're not even close to there. You know, and, and we're not even, we're, they're, they're leaps and bounds ahead of us, Iran and Russia, when it comes to the uh, cyber warfare stuff. Yet we're still worried about, uh, I don't know, <laughs> you know, uh, which pronouns is somebody using these days? You, you know, it's it's like it's like, well, yeah, you know, let's yeah. let's let's really figure out the true threats that that we're facing. Because we were talking about narco terrorism, do you believe that there's any validity to legalizing drugs? No, I've I've seen it failed. Um, I went out to Portland. And they legalized all the drugs. Yeah. And you want to talk about a third world country that is port that is now Portland. That's what you get. Because when you legalize those types of hard drugs, where even doctors will never prescribe, tells you something. And Portland is on its way to be a failed nation state as a result. Um, I, I have friends of mine that refuse to set foot in Portland now because of how bad it is. They live on the outskirts and they're like, Portland isn't the place you go to. And, you know, I've watched documentaries and videos of, of how these cops, all they do is hand out, you know, Narcan and respond to these overdoses constantly. It's it, people are living in tents, homeless, all, you know, everything again, first, second, third order effects, right? Yeah. You know, first order effect was what? Oh yeah. Let's legalize every drug you know, every hard drug in Portland, uh, you know, that way it will do whatever it did. Well, second order effect is what now businesses have left, right. As a result, uh, and third order effect, you got homeless encampments everywhere. You have police that are barely able to keep up with the calls for service and it's, it's, it's a mess. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and if Pete and these good idea fairies, I'll call them the lawmakers that don't realize the third order effects of cartels actually moving in, and settling into these uh, state, I'll call them nation states, uh, they're dead wrong because they're doing that. When that uh, up in Seattle, when Chaz was created, that you know yeah. whatever yeah. the the, the no, no police zone, yeah. the amount of intel we were getting of drugs and guns being run through there by different organizations was just amazing to me because it was like, well, yeah, obviously that's going to happen because what you just created is a warlord created his own territory and he's going to do whatever he wants in there. Yep. 
you know, when you say different, it. when you say different organizations, can you elaborate at all? <laughs> yeah. You're talking cartels. You're talking, uh, you know, like uh, motorcycle gangs. Um, you're talking, uh, local gangs too, just, just those types of organizations, okay. uh, just moving stuff in a, you're not talking about low level criminal, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. talking about yeah. high level type people that will take advantage of these types of situations within the country. Did you ever hear the solitary Baron, uh, the, uh, the, sorry, solitary robber, um, no philosophy of government that basically all government is, is the, it's the solitary robber. Oh, uh, so yeah, 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 yeah. So, so yeah. you, so we all agree that this one person can rob us and that's what keeps everything safe. And what we can't have is we can't have a bunch of different robbers because that robber's job is to keep all the other robbers away. And that's, and that's what we sign on for. Right. And yeah, once you start having every Tom, Dick and Harry able to rob you as well, now you've just got chaos. Um, It's funny to me that based off what you said about drug legalization, and I agree with you for what it's worth. Um, with all the national outcries we get, climate change, okay, hey, we got to boycott this company because they pollute or don't use plastic straws or do we have these huge outcries about this or that. Yet we distinctly have not had the outcry to not use drugs because it's a national security issue. That to me is interesting because you, as you know, I mean, you're correct me if, I, if you disagree, but. I mean, this isn't a law enforcement problem at a certain point. It's a supply issue. It's, it's a demand issue. And if the demand, demand is there, issue. we we, we got to change that mentality. If we can wean people off of plastic bags and plastic straws, isn't it worth it to try to go, hey, motherfuckers, do you understand that by doing this party drug or doing this, you are actively supporting list of bad shit that happens in Afghanistan, list of bad shit that happens in Venezuela, all the cartel activity. And you're threatening national security in this country. Doesn't that, I mean, I hate to be Nancy Reagan and say, just say no, but motherfucker, do you understand the bad effects of drug use that go beyond just what it personally does to you? Is there, is there a flaw in that? Am I wrong anywhere? No, you're not. I think if people truly realize the funnel, the cash funnel that goes into funding um, terrorism and goes into funding these different radical groups, um, I think they'd probably throw up on themselves to, to realize that they're basically signing their own death warrant as a result, not just personally, but also as as a nation, right? And and when you continue to poison yourself or pay money towards a drug that you you know choose to do again, it's a you know choice you choose yeah. to do, um, and it's amazing to me that that people just are not in, are not aware enough about it you know and and don't see it i mean i mean you need to work in in certain sectors of industry to actually really see it such as law enforcement or or intel analysis or Mm -hmm. you know uh counterterrorism or you know these types of areas to be able to really see the impact but if you're just the the common individual you're you're not going to see that because you're buried your head in the sand long enough you're not going to see that stuff and and that's the thing i get again i go back into um the whole uh, path of least resistance, yep. right? This is what makes me comfortable. This is what I'm going to do. And that's it. It's all me, 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 the selfishness of it all. That, oh, so man, I'm really tempted to go down a rabbit hole here. Okay. Let me, <laughs> let me risk it. Um, so it's funny because I think there's, I'm going to think this out loud 
and I'm going to try not to misstate anything because this could, what I what I'm saying could get misinterpreted. Right. I was thinking about the trajectory of the GY. That it starts off radical terror against the West. The West pushes back. We eventually, um, you know, we end up going into war for a long period of time. As you pointed out, there's this old world mentality that I think we could probably agree fuels a lot of the radicalization, right? Mm -hmm. And now after 20 plus years or 20 years and then whatever's happening in Iraq now, whatever minimal footprint we have there. Um, a lot of veterans have died for any number of reasons, even old age in some cases. Um, a lot of that, you know, the military is very much trying desperately, it seems like, to become a peacetime military at all costs. A lot of the lessons are kind of being shunted aside, at least in pop culture, in pop wisdom, in common you know, understandings of the world uh, that we see in, in mass media. And you see in the veteran community, or at least I see this, and I'm not sure how much or how little to make of it. I see that a lot of people in the veteran community are reaching back to, let's call it an old world mentality, to go, hey, there are some eternal truths that have to be clung to for us to move forward. And what I'm getting at here is the very debaucherous, wanton, lustful, self-destructive West that radical Islam hated so much in 2001 isn't a complete myth. There are a lot of people that do things like casual drug use or whatever that are inherently not just self-destructive to them, but self-destructive to the society, cause a lot of bad effects throughout the world, yet we will protest plastic straws because there's no real ouch for that. Nobody wants to give up the drugs. We already saw Pineapple Express. We saw Big Lebowski. We want mm -hmm. our we want our, our smokes when we want them, and we don't mm -hmm. want to give that up. And it seems to me that there's a funny symbiotic nature between the condemnation that uh, radical Islam had of the West and now some of the perspective that we as veterans are looking at and going hey motherfuckers after 20 years of defending you all you know they're not totally wrong i mean you guys do have to tighten up your shock group there is a lot of complacency and you guys haven't sacrificed a whole fucking lot to be here and you're fucking up the rest of the world by this activity am yeah. i overstating i mean correct me if i'm wrong i don't know i'm thinking this out loud i've never really so said this out so loud before. so uh, so I, I put it like this so you remember that whole uh movement uh in the veteran community years ago it was the the 0.45 percent of the u.s population actually served in the military less than one percent right 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 the, that whole one, less than one percent serve in the military well even less of a one percent of that yeah serve in our law enforcement community yeah. right and even less of one percent of that you know serve in special forces and and all of that right. and and the way we see it, right, and I, the way I think you're you're trying to say it is, we sacrificed twenty years of our lives to bring a better, to bring to make it better for you all here. The less than one percent of the U.S. population decided we're going to raise our right hand and we're going to go fight the enemy on their own turf. That way, you all at home 
can enjoy your concerts, can enjoy this, can enjoy that, and not worry about terrorism or not worried about, you know, X, Y, Z. But now we've come back. And like you said, the army's trying to push this peacetime, the military's trying to push this peacetime mentality, which I think we're not even close to there. And our politicians who are more concerned about getting reelected in the next two to four years are just concentrating on that. And the rest of the world that don't abide by the reelection rules, they work the long game where we work the short game, right? All right, we got two years because my cabinet's going to be around for two years. Let's get this done in two years and then we're going to move on. Or I hope to get reelected in two years. So let's ban plastic straws because that's what the voters want. That way I can get elected, reelected or plastic bags or whatever, whatever the, uh, the hot topic, quote unquote, right. hot button topic is. And mind you, those individuals are the minority of the majority, yeah. right? The voice, their yeah. opinions about the plastic straws and all that stuff. And, you know, I got to see it in, in local government, right? Uh, I was watching the city council meeting and how they, they, you know, those little nip, nip bottles, right? The nip bottles, alcohol yeah. nip bottles. Yeah. And, and this individual wanted to get rid of them and to replace them with plastic nip bottles because the glass is not good or it breaks or what have you or whatever. And the argument this individual presented was truly horrible about why the entire city needs to move to plastic nip bottles uh-huh. versus glass. And you should see the majority actually speak out against it, which I'm glad because it kind of go- went to show how disillusioned this individual was. But it, can you imagine if not many of the majority was were there in that city council meeting and those city councilors only listened to this individual and ended up voting for this individual, right? And and that's what I that's what I see is that again people always talk about the silent majority. Well, it's now it's time not to be silent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The silent majority enjoy the comforts of first world problems. That's the yes. reality. Yes. Right. Yep. And when first world problems become third world problems like Portland, like Minneapolis, yeah. like Seattle, all of a sudden the silent majority is like, what the hell just happened? Yeah. Well, it was in front of you, but you chose not to speak out. You know, you chose to bury your head in the sand because you were living too comfortably yeah. and you didn't want to make those waves. And that's the result, you know, again, first, second, third order effects. hundred percent. Let's talk about some of the other first world problems. What are your thoughts on bail reform? Uh, terrible. Why? Look at San Francisco and their crazy amount of shoplifting. You're talking massive amount of people shop. You're talking gangs of people just running to, let's say, Nordstrom, taking everything off the rack and leaving. Well, that was the result of bail reform. Well, let's do misdemeanors as shoplifting without, yeah, no worries, slap on the wrist and move on. Well, there's the broken windows theory, right? Right. right. If, if, if we are going to not look past, that's the thing where if we're going to let go of certain things, well, those small things are going to turn into big things yep. as a result. Yep. And this is what's happening, right? With bail reform, like, you know, we see it today with juveniles, right? The juvenile age keeps getting pushed. I mean, I think at, at, at some point it's going to be like 25 years old and you're still a juvenile. Yeah, right. But, right. you know, it keeps, it keeps getting pushed. But as a result, 
that handcuffs a lot of the courts, a lot of probation, a lot of stuff that can be done to, for us not to be able to do it anymore. Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, a while back, uh, this was maybe a month ago in Massachusetts, where this uh, juvenile, 13, 14 years old, had this warrant for this arrest because they're really bad kid, you know, obviously grew up in a bad family and all that, but really committing some crimes out there. And no one really had the ability to go grab him because he's a juvenile, because the laws are so strict and how you take him into custody that you can't even take him into custody. Wow. You know, wow. And, 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 but, but to them now, this juvenile sees that law enforcement does not have yeah. um, any bite anymore. So what are they going to do? Oh yeah, I'm going to do even more stuff now because now no one can come after me as a result. So with bail reform, it, to me, it, it can't be looked at as an agenda for a politician. It needs to be really looked at as a collective criminal justice reform type of movement, right? where you got to look from the top down, not from the bottom up. Right? A lot of times people are looking from the bottom up. Well, let's start with the police and work our way up. No, it's the other way around. Yeah. Got to yeah. start with the judges and work your way down. Yeah. Because yeah. there are some judges that do some out, outlandish type things in court right. where you're just like what right you know a, a quick example is we, we recently had this case really bad domestic case guy brandished a knife the whole nine yards and it was like he tried doing suicide by cop at one point it was like guys yeah, dangerous yeah, right? yeah. really bad yeah. we had video of him uh brandishing the knife at his girlfriend in like basically kidnapping her in her own apartment where she wasn't wow. allowed to leave yeah. whole nine yards so we did this whole, this whole hearing was done. It's called the dangerousness, dangerousness hearing, right? Are you a danger to society? Do we need to hold on to you as a result? So I'm watching this judge and we thought we had it in the bag. Oh my God. Yeah. This dude, this dude's going to be held. There's no way yeah, yeah, she's going right. to, yeah, this, this judge is going to release him. And mind you, his girlfriend also had a miscarriage due to the stress that he put her under. Oh, Jesus. Oh, God. I don't think medically that can be proven or has, but you know, the walks like a duck talks like a duck. It's, you know, you know what I mean? Sure. It's a duck. So the judge ruled you are a danger, but I'm going to release you on your personal recognizance to your family, but you have to put a GPS bracelet on and you cannot go anywhere near your ex. Well, to me, to us, she just had this judge she just handed the ex a death sentence. A GPS isn't going to stop him from no, going right, to her apartment. Right. A piece of paper that says restraining order isn't going to stop him. Yeah. You know, and yeah. and that, but those types of rulings are what's the problem. You know, and that's why I always say that yeah, bail reform. Sure, the way it went about was bad because it was an agenda versus what, an actual thing. What's the fix for that? I mean, that to me seems like. There has to be a tectonic plate movement, a shift in popular consciousness about the issue. But what's the fix? How do you, it's, how it's do we get people. out of this? It's, it's the people that got to talk. I mean, there's only so, I always say like when people complain about certain laws or something as, as a cop, I said, politicians won't listen to me as a cop. Yeah. I'm the last person they'll look at. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's you all that need to speak out. You know, just like when when uh, this law came down, uh, a couple laws came down in, in Massachusetts, that you're like, what are they like? Really? So, so for example, um, it was uh, when was it? Was this the other day? It was a. It was a. Um, I'm trying to think exactly when it was. I, I can't think when it was. 
but it was a law that oh that's what it is it's the, the this gun reform law that this the the state in Massachusetts trying to trying to push forward and it's truly ridiculous it's 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 unconstitutional you're talking there's so many issues with it okay. and the politicians decided to have a behind closed doors meeting about it to try to find a way to push it through well to me that's like that's that's um like uh, uh, very suspect, right? Why do you need to have yeah. a closed door all of a sudden because so many people spoke out against it? And why aren't people being even more vocal as a result? Yeah. You know, yeah. you have 400 chiefs of police in Massachusetts that are totally against this bill. Yeah. This is probably one of the first times I've seen something like a movement like that just from the police chiefs alone. So now they're trying to disguise it as something else. But again, why is it? Yeah. You know, yeah. to me, that that tectonic shape uh, shift needs to happen right from the top, and needs yeah. to happen from that silent majority that needs to speak out. Let's talk about one of the issues you've written about: uh, behavioral versus racial profiling. Uh, it's a yep. topic that I think people, civilians, really need to wrap their heads around. Talk yep. about why. First off, why is this an issue that's important for people to understand? So as as cops, we we get trained and as professionals, we get trained to look at behavior, right? Uh, someone's behavior. When when I see a, a hand-to-hand, we call it a hand-to-hand. When I see what looks appears to be a hand-to-hand where somebody exchanges money for drugs or what appears to be drugs, um, yeah, I'm going to stop those two individuals and have a conversation. They might have passed a lighter. I don't know. But from a distance, it looked like a drug deal. I just go there just to dispel the suspicions that I have. And that's what's called reasonable suspicion, right? Under the law, I have reasonable suspicion to believe that a law may have been broken or it build it to probable cause, mm-hmm. right? And, and it, people have to really understand the definitions of yeah. these things yes. before they start making assumptions on racial profiling or, or behavioral profiling. Uh, well, not so much behavioral profiling, but more on the racial profiling side. So here's, here's where I have an issue, right? I'll give you, this is actually is happening in Massachusetts. There's something now called the long hearing. Long hearing is, is basically when you pull somebody over and the individual will feel like you pulled them over because he or she were black, Hispanic, Asian, whatever. So what ends up happening and it goes before a judge and the judge has to rule whether or not your car stop was racially based. So you got a mind reader. It it becomes better. It gets better. What they'll do then is subpoena your entire history of motor vehicle stops. And they want to see your patterns of pulling cars over. Now, here's the issue. If you work in an urban area in Boston where (laughs) 90% of the population is black and you're a white police officer and you pull cars over, more likely than not, 90% of your car stops are going to be black people. Right. There's the issue right there. But they're ignoring that. Right. There's actually an SJC ruling, a Superior Supreme Judicial Court ruling that is coming down. We're hoping it goes in our favor that they're really looking into excluding those facts that you work in a predominantly black neighborhood or you work in a predominantly Hispanic. It's, it's a real thing that's happening right now. And it's scary. So wow. this now this actually happened. Uh, this is an actual case out of New Bedford, Massachusetts. Uh, you could probably look it up. It's it's, it's kind of common knowledge. So this cop overnight 
sees a car, broken taillight, a couple other uh, civil infractions, tinted out, right? Pulls the car over. Registration, I think, was expired or revoked, something like that. Goes up to the driver, gets the driver's information. Driver turned out to be a, a gang guy, multiple warrants, you know, dangerous guy, all that mm-hmm. stuff. And he also finds a gun in the car. Now, to you and me, that's an open and shut case. Oh, perfect. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That's pretty good. Well, this new Bedford cop now is going through the ringer at a long hearing because he, the operator who's Hispanic, oh no, who's black, felt that he was being racially profiled, even though his windows were completely tinted late at night. And it didn't even matter that the gun was there. It didn't matter anything like that, but they are seriously considering this. And oh, by the way, the cop who pulled him over is Hispanic. The court is excluding the fact that the cop is Hispanic. They're doing that on purpose. So behavioral profiling versus racial profiling. Now, the issue I have with the, 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 what's going on right now is you are creating racial profiling, right? Versus, well, this cop did really good police work. He, you know, the guy uh, had a broken taillight. I forget exactly what it was. Identified the driver. Driver had a warrant for his arrest. During an inventory, finds a gun underneath the seat. That's like textbook police work. Textbook. But now you're taking the textbook police work and turning it into something that it isn't. Right? So so this is the issue is that is now plaguing law enforcement all across the country is this idea of racial profiling has come back. You know, so 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 yeah. it's a it's a real issue yeah. where yeah maybe it was back in the fifties, eighties, uh, early nineties. Yeah, maybe it was a thing back then. But law enforcement as a whole, you know, we've changed the training to notice behavior. So we're more or less behavioral analysts, almost looking at human yeah. behavior yeah. during a car stop. If I stop a car and this individual is, has white knuckles on the steering wheel, sweating <laughs> profusely. And it's 30 degrees outside. I, I'm going to have some questions. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be like, hey, you're right. You yeah. having a seizure or a stroke or yeah. you got something you shouldn't have. You know, so so that that's the thing where people uh, are uh, have ignored those things. And I, I pointed out. So it's funny. Uh, actually, one of my uh, officers recently pulled the car over, did a good job. There was drugs, all kinds of stuff in the car. But my favorite thing was the girlfriend, which the bad guy, by the way, took off on his girlfriend and left his girlfriend with us. I was like, that is perfect. I was like, man, he's 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 a go-getter. He's he's a keeper, isn't he? But her whole thing was he got pulled over because of his name. I was like, because of his name, why? Because he had some sort of uh, I think it was like an Asian name or something like that. But she's trying to allude to that he was pulled over because he's Asian or something. But the car was a rental. So we, we had no idea who the heck was driving anyways. But then, you know, what, what I what my kind of retort back to her, I was like, oh, all right. So what you're telling me is it didn't matter that the registration was expired on your rental car. It didn't matter that the driver of the car switched places with you in plain view of the officer, knowing that he had a suspended license. And it didn't matter that you had white powder on the center console with a scale, which would indicate to myself and a veteran police officer right here that you are in drug dealing mode. None of that mattered, but it's because he's Asian. Is that what you're telling me? So she stopped right away, but it like, I I told, I finally told her, I'm like, you know what? 
was like, there's something called personal accountability. So you basically messed up and then you just got to deal with it. And that's it. So, so that's the whole thing. I mean, the difference between behavioral profiling and racial profiling yeah. is that yeah. there's a stark difference, you know, very, very, I mean, here's the thing, me, when I go on a plane and I'm getting searched every time, yeah, you know what, this is racial profiling because guess what? Yeah. I'm from the middle East. I'm also part African and I'm getting stopped because of my name. Mm-hmm. Is that not racial profiling? I didn't exhibit a single behavior that would, you know, that thousand yard stare or anything like that. Right. But all of a sudden I'm getting picked out of the airport and here I am a cop. Right. 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 So, so right. people have to know the difference and see the difference. You asked the question in the book and I'll ask it of you here. Do you think, um, do you think you could ever stop racism? Oh, no, that yeah. is an, an inherent tribal primal, uh, thing that's been in us for, in, it's in our DNA. Mm-hmm. Not so much the racism aspect, but I know I did air quotes, but being comfortable in our own culture. Yep. There's an and, otherness. And that's it. Yeah. 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 There's yeah. us and there's others. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and it's like, you know, I always ask people, you know, uh, people, I was like, listen, when I go into like a Lebanese store, I feel great. It's like, hey, you know, everyone knows, you uh, know, we're all talking yeah. the same language. We know the foods, all that great stuff. But if you take an Asian dude and put them in a Lebanese store, they're not going to know what the heck, like, where am I? You know, same thing with me. If I walk into bodega, I'm not going to know. Am I going to be comfortable? Not really. That's the reality because I'm not aware of what's going on around me. Yeah. Right. But also me, I'm also a chameleon. I can kind of blend in, but like, Hey, what's going on guys? Like, you know, rock and roll. It doesn't really matter to me, but, but, you know, I think of it as, as you know, I think, uh, what's his name? Uh, Sebastian Unger wrote the book Tribe. Yep. Yep. And I think he put it really eloquently the way he wrote about it. He, he even went to as, as lengths as veterans. We're a tribe. Yeah. We're comfortable amongst each other. Yeah. You know, we're not comfortable among civilians. That, you know, he took it that, to that level. Yeah. Right. So will racism ever die? Oh, no. No. You, you, you have your radicals that will take their, their, um, not feeling comfortable with a particular race and turn it into something that it's not. So let's, let's push that boat further into the pond based on that definition. Uh, it, not that we defined racism, but that we kind of said, Hey, it's part of the sameness and the otherness, you know, and your mm-hmm. comfort level and all that. Should racism die? Or should we ever eradicate? Should we, what's the, how do we delineate? How do we draw a line in the sand to say what people should get rid of, uh, target as behavior, and what stuff that's like, oh, well, yeah, I mean, of course, you're going to like your own kind. Got it. Like, how do you, if, if that's how we look at it, how do we draw that line in the sand? How do we discriminate between good behavior and bad behavior? T- to me, racism the only time it racism will never die that that just like when when you have politicians says we're going to end racism well that's a bullshit statement yep. they're just saying it to get votes right yep. that that yep. is the most bullshit you can sell to anybody but to me it's kind of like the more attention you give it the more it grows yeah right it's it's one of those things where you know that's why we hate like with active shooters um giving them nor- notoriety where the media spills out their names, stuff like that, stuff like that. In Connecticut, after um, Sandy Hook Elementary School, the shooter 
was never named in any affidavits or reports. They did that purposely mm -hmm. because they did not want to give the shooter notoriety. The only thing they labeled him as the shooter. And that's it. All right. Morgan Freeman said it best when he, yeah. you know, he, uh, during an interview, I remember he was, uh, doing an, and somebody was asking him about, you know, did he experience racism growing up in an industry and stuff like that, stuff like that. He said, no, I had a goal and I went for it and I did it. If you give it attention, it's gonna, yeah, it's gonna grow. Right. But if you don't, if you just push forward, like the way most people that I know, uh, minorities that I know that just ignored it and just did their thing, became doctors, became successful, whatever. Perfect. Right. I mean, yeah. I, did I grow up as a kid growing up in racism? Absolutely. But I never blamed an entire race for it. Yeah. I, I said, yeah, that dude, <laughs> his parents effed him up. Yeah. yeah right. You know, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't because an entire race hated me. It was just that one individual. And I that's, don't pay attention. I, that's, I think a big point too, is that racism writ large may never stop existing mm -hmm. but individual racists can also change oh yeah that can always change you know it, yeah. it's it's kind of like hate or nerves or <laughs> like any emotional state like it, it, it might never stop existing but individuals can always change yeah. mind, you know yeah. and that's i yeah. think yeah a, a key point with it I want, I, I feel like, well, first off, we could do 20 more hours on everything <laughs> in the book, but I, but I think there's yeah. one, there's one big theme that I really can't let you go without talking about. Explain to everybody what the difference is between a sheepdog and a hybrid wolf and why that matters. Sure. So we've all read uh, Colonel Grossman and his book on, on killing. And he talked about sheepdog mentality and all, all, all that good stuff. And I've taken it a step further through talking through various uh, people in the soft community and, and SWAT and law enforcement. And I said, I've always felt that there was more than just the sheepdog mentality. If you think about a sheepdog, a sheepdog responds to the threat, right? If there's a wolf after the sheep, the sheepdog will respond and do its job, do its job. Great. Right. A hybrid wolf and a cop who has that hybrid wolf mentality or the warrior mindset mentality will chase after that threat, will seek that threat out, will look for it to keep his or her pack safe and secure. Same thing with lions and their tribes, right? They will hunt down that threat. They won't wait for it to encroach on their territory. They're going to go after it. And that's the difference between the hybrid wolf and the sheepdog. The sheepdog will protect the flock if the threat is present. The hybrid wolf will go after that threat regardless of where it's at. It could be 20 miles away, but it doesn't matter. It's a threat to its pack. It's going to go and find it. So why is that important for people to understand, both in the military Leo community and outside the military Leo community? It's because there are different types of cops as a result mm -hmm. or different types of military members as a result. And certain military members and certain cops move on to, let's say military, move on to special forces or some other high-speed group or high-end group. And that's why certain officers go to undercover work, go to drug work, gang work, SWAT, you know, different types of units, you know, more uh, kinetic type units, kind of, uh, uh, what do you call, uh, kind of like an ODA type unit, you know, in, 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 the, in the law enforcement world, because they're the hunters. 
Mm-hmm. Right. When I'm when I'm sitting in a cruiser and I'm driving around, I'm not just driving around just to drive. I'm seeking, I'm hunting, I'm looking. Right. I'm looking for that threat. I'm looking for that hand to hand. I'm looking for that uh for that crime, that major crime that's happening. Right. And to stop it before it gets worse. That's just like with my my unit, you know, the, the way we work is we look at trends and patterns of certain behaviors and we go after that trends and patterns of that individual because they're exhibiting certain behaviors that are going to turn into what we already know. Right. So that that's the whole idea behind the, the sheepdog just waits and they do a great job. Right. And not to discount sheepdog cops or sheepdog militaries, because, you know, when the active shooter happens, oh, yeah, they're going running in. Right. They're going after that threat. They're doing what they got to do. But the hybrid wolf, right. will see it ahead of time. Right. They, they can look at someone or look at a situation and just already kind of forecast in their brains that this is about this is about to go bad. And I got to do something about it before it gets bad. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's the difference. It's uh, it's kind of like how we ran Afghanistan. It was Anasak and then the ANA would just be the sheepdogs manning the, I mean, some people would quibble with even calling them sheepdogs, but nonetheless, the ones that, <laughs> that just kind of manned checkpoints, but then Anasak yeah. would actually go target the whole time. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting. It's an interesting idea. Um, it's interesting to see how that plays out in decision-making both for the individual officer or soldier as the career path they, they take yeah. um, and how that mirrors your personality. And yeah. then, uh, and then also how decision-makers can leverage that yeah. and leverage those capabilities. Um, how happy are you with the book? Do you feel uh, fulfilled? Do you, are you like, man, that stuff's, do you feel like it's done? Do you feel like, Hey, that those, those issues are out there over with. I don't need to write about any of that stuff again, I can find new things? Or do you feel like, no, that said a bunch, but I got a lot more to say on some of the same subjects? So I think that book is going to be the first of another mm. that may be in the works. That I, Because again, I'm still pumping out articles. I'm still pumping out stuff, uh, publishing different works. I think the next book is going to have a lot more now that it, it's kind of like the, all right, everyone knows my philosophy. Everyone knows where I come from. The second book is going to be like, all right, let's, let's get not get down to the serious stuff and really analyze and look into the serious stuff. So I think that's kind of where I'm, I'm going with. What's the, what's the serious stuff? What is that? Like the narco-terrorism, like okay. the, uh, okay. like, like some of these really big topics gotcha. that no one really wants to talk about or see where I'm, I'm going to go right out there and, talk about wow very very cool that will be something i'll be i'll be very interested in that because i think it's high time that gets some publicity again yeah yeah Yeah, (laughs) uh, that's probably well done um and then uh we're going to be dropping this i mean this could be a quick flash to bang we're putting this one out relatively soon so what the heck let's just talk wonderground really quickly i'll see you on halloween absolutely dude it's going to be trippy this one is I mean, you saw the email from yesterday, right? So now, yeah. huge change to the show. Um, I I got to tell you, putting your poetry in <laughs> with with uh, Edgar Allan Poe is fucking true. So I'll tell you, I'll, I'll give you a little behind the scenes of what happened. So the way Poe wrote the story, yep. at one point, the character, the protagonist, reads like poetry or reads a story about Sir Lancelot and 
like another night Ethelred, and they kind of go into this. I just cut all that, and instead I just put your poetry in there instead <laughs> because that's like that's the fucking difference. Uh, but, but like, like it does the same effect, but it's like it's like I just there were there were sections of that that I did that with everybody's stuff, but yours for that piece, I was like, oh yeah, that needs to that we need to we need to do our own for this. So <laughs> oh, it's gonna, gonna be, be awesome. fucking dude. It's gonna be fucking trippy. My only struggle with your stuff is I was like, I know so much of the emphasis that you put on it was for the military Leo community. You're capturing a certain mindset. Let's say there's, there's like an instructive quality to your poetry. And I was like, well, I'm definitely twisting this to my own ends here. I'm like, (laughs) we're just emphasizing like the fucking raw, raw uh, thing. And there's not so much on the, like, we're not emphasizing the instructional nature of it, but it's uh, dude, it's going to be a fucking fun night, man. I can't wait. I can't wait for it. So, um, yeah, I'm really glad we're able to put that together. Absolutely, man. It's gonna be a good time. <laughs> and then we get the and then we get the it's weird, it's not a book launch because the book's already out there. Yeah. But it's I, I we're calling it a launch because I don't know what we don't know what else to call it, but whatever yeah, the fuck. No, it's all good. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. Are we gonna read? Do are we did Charlie say anything about you reading sections from the book or anything? No, not yet. I think uh, I think that's a conversation we're gonna have with Charlie probably sooner rather than later, okay. uh, to all figure right. out what we're gonna do. So yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, it'll be an open bar, so people will be in the mood for whatever you have to say at that point. They'll, they'll be like, <laughs> exactly. Nobody's going to be feeling any pain. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, whatever. Uh, give me another yeah. drink. I'm good. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. No, dude, it's going to be really, really fun. Well, I'll see you in God just a fucking week, a week from today, yep. a week from this recording, anyway. Um, and uh, thanks, man. Thanks for coming on and talking about it. Yeah, it's absolutely. Thanks book, for obviously. having me back. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thrilled to see that it's out there and doing what it does. And, uh, yeah, if you don't have it, those of you listening, more than worth your time to go get. Um, thanks for coming on, brother. All right. I appreciate it, brother. That was Iman Cafell's profile in Havoc. Such a great guy. Um, such an interesting thinker. You know, it's just rare. It, it, you think about Iman and what he talks about. Think about how rare it is that an active law enforcement officer is writing so prolifically about what is happening in real time in the law enforcement community. Really impressive. Okay. Um, I talked before about our upcoming Halloween event for veterans repertory theater. Uh, Come check it out. Go to savagewonder.com, savagewonder, all one word.com, savagewonder.com and RSVP. If you're in the not just the greater Boston area, anywhere in New England. Come on over. We do have limited seating because we do like our intimate spaces, but the location is incredible. It's this private location. I can't tell you what it is. We'll tell you when you are SVP. And it's an incredible private residence about half a block from the Boston Commons. And it will be an awesome date night. As I say, there's a dress code. It has to be business attire or a costume. So jacket for men, cocktail attire for ladies. Or a costume. <clears throat> Three stories of open bar, finger foods, immersive art show, Fall of the House of Usher, I'm in Cafell's book launch. It's all free. Just RSVP. So come on by and see us um, this upcoming Tuesday for that. We'll bring in Halloween together. Okay. Um, I don't have anything else to talk about right now. I do need to thank our producer, Mike Neal, for putting this all together. 
Um, my thanks again to Iman Kefel on behalf of everyone at Havoc Journal. We will see you next time for another Profile in Havoc. <laughs>